0: Exit for podcasts. is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me.
1: I hope that you... Hey everybody and welcome back to Uncanny X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise starting with Giant Size X-Men number one and making our way through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. I am Nico and that is the last time I will be saying that phrase with me to say goodbye to this era of the Uncanny X-Men is of course Jonah.
0: Hello Nico, hello everyone and goodbye to Giant Sized X-Men. This
1: is the definitive end of the Giant Size Uncanny X-Men era. When X-Men was cancelled at number 66, they put it into reprint so they could continue publishing that material to make money and keep their trademark. Giant Size X-Men number 1 saw the title relaunched as an international adult team of mutants forced to work together under the tutelage of a cranky bald old man. And it took some time, but gosh, it turned into the most amazing book about the most incredible family. 138 represents an end to that. It also represents a new beginning. And it wasn't just a new beginning for the comic itself or any of the characters. It was a new beginning for the franchise. While Dark Phoenix Saga did not cross other titles, it did give birth to the idea of the X-Men event crossover, this major moment that had so many ramifications. The next several years of storytelling come from that location. Jonah has said a number of times in the last several episodes that he feels like what we're seeing now is already sort of like the after Gene and everything that comes after the Phoenix and It's so funny because comics is going to forever reverberate with the sound of the X-Men event and the X-Men crossover. Jonah, we had commented a number of times that we felt whole episodes didn't have any major driving point behind it. And then we even had to split this one arc in two because it was so dense and so full. The next several years of storytelling is going to be once a year producing a Dark phoenix size event running across multiple titles. It's just a different experience, knowing that this is going to rewrite what the X-Men do going forward. How do you feel about these bigger stories coming between the smaller moments?
0: I actually really like that idea of having much larger culmination events and then having smaller things in between, because in those smaller things, as we saw with the Dark Phoenix saga, we saw hints and seeds of something off with Jean. So having something like that I think is really great because especially when I don't know what's going to happen next, I love that idea of a huge this is what we're leading up to moment and it being everything and we tie every single loose end. I think it's a pretty great way to tell storytelling because not everything is going to be the Dark Phoenix saga. Not everything is going to be this grandiose amazing thing. Not everything is going to be on its level storytelling wise and so having smaller things and smaller events and smaller stories and arcs lead up to a much larger event that affects everybody, I think is pretty cool because that means everybody can do it. it. Doesn't just have to have doesn't just have to happen in X-Men. It can happen in any other title where something huge and massive happens. I'm gonna hold you to that as the crossovers start piling up and we're gonna have to start working our way through multiple titles.
1: It begins as early as the fourth issue. Of the new mutants where already you need to be reading multiple books for these crossovers to make sense the first major definitive universe changing crossover for the x-men is going to be the mutant massacre it's interesting to discuss the mutant massacre because it was the first time where marvel had to take a step back in collecting their omnibuy line while later crossovers have received large format omnibus like the age of apocalypse Or Onslaught. The Mutant Massacre represented the first time that X Factor, New Mutants, and Uncanny X Men crossed over together. And not only did those titles intersect, but Thor and Daredevil, titles written by two people close to the creators of the Mutant Massacre, also tied in, as well as Power Pack and a few other things. Up through now, the Marvel Omnibus line of Uncanny X-Men has been our chief way of having physical copies in their current collected form, as close to chronological as Marvel needs it to be for it to make sense. However, starting with The Mutant Massacre, Marvel is no longer able to keep these titles as separate as they've been. The uncannies we've had so far, outside of a few annuals or bonus issues and additional material presented to enhance the story, has predominantly followed the numeric order of 94 and on, the omnibus for the mutant massacre jumps between titles at a rapid rate and even jumps ahead several years to collect fallout issues that tie back in and help make the story feel more complete. So, I know that we started this whole thing to talk about Uncanny X-Men and Nightcrawler, but you're in for a handful of Thor and Captain America and Avengers and by the time we get to Inferno and you're reading three Spider titles, it just gets real crazy.
0: Well, I may or may not be eating my words sooner than later, but I think I'm excited for it. You know, that's pretty cool and that's One of the great things about having such an expansive universe is that you get to do these kinds of things. Granted, it does become a little ridiculous and taxing as a reader if you're constantly having to buy issues of different runs to understand everything, and that's where it can be a little daunting and push people away. But if you do it spaced out enough and for very big special occasions, I think it can work great. And for the most part, it's going to work great for us as well. It's going
1: to get interesting how we have to work our format around how crossovers are going to ultimately change the title. It's why we decided that for the big relaunch coming up, New Mutants and Uncanny X-Men are going to have to be read together as one unit, at least for the foreseeable future. While it does take until the early 200s for the true form of the X-Men crossover to take effect, we do have a number of major events coming up, only one of which involves John Burns still, sadly as John Byrne's run is going to end shortly. Before we even get to John Byrne and Chris Claremont's goodbye to what the X-Men was, we have one more Jean Grey story to look at. We're going to be taking a look at Bizarre Adventures 27's A Story as well. This issue has a script by Chris Claremont, art by John Buscema, and Klaus Janson, both of whom are industry legends along with Claremont. Jonah, you want to tell
0: us a little bit more about those books? Bizarre Adventure number 27, A Story. Sarah, Jean's sister, thinks back on a small vacation where Jean and Sarah are captured by a Tuma, Nemo's nemesis. The two escape due to the awesome power of the Phoenix and learn a lot about each other's life. Uncanny X-Men number 138. We go through all the events in fights of the X-Men leading up to Jean's death. Voicing his feelings and opinions for once, Scott leaves the X-Men to go figure himself out. One of the things I love the
1: most about 138 is I actually think you can start 138, read through the giant-sized X-Men come in about six pages from the end, then switch to giant size number one, and read back to 138. It's an interesting experiment, but it does allow you to skip some of the harder to read stuff early on in the series, but we'll get to that. Both issues we're going to be covering today involve characters standing by Jean's grave missing her. Bizarre Adventure's story Sees Sarah standing at Jean's grave a year after her passing. It's interesting that Sarah is standing by Jean's grave because there really is nothing there. Jean burned up in space. So it's fascinating to think that her grave is still given the same significance that any other grave would. It's also so interesting that Sarah has appeared what? four times and little bits here and there. And suddenly she has her own issue dedicated to her experiences with her sister. Jonah, did you
0: even realize that Jean had a sister? No, A lot of the X-Men don't often talk about their families or their backstory. The only people knowing that we have definitive siblings being Scott with Alex and Colossus with his sister. But Jean having a sister and having her have so much thrusted upon us at once is pretty interesting. I think Sarah is a pretty interesting character and actually serves as a pretty good foil to Jean of almost what Jean would have been if she wasn't a mutant. And I think her having this is nice because it's hinted about within the Dark Phoenix Saga and in 138 a little bit of gene and sarah actually having a very strong relationship but we don't see it a lot gene never mentioned her sister i don't think at all up until this point but this issue i think got their dynamic right i think it was a great issue to talk about siblings together however i don't think the atuma plot fits in this at all it is absolutely not surprising to hear you say that. One of the things Claremont loved
1: to do was to pit the Phoenix up against larger-than-life characters. Phoenix tries to single-handedly take on Magneto. Phoenix challenges Fire Lord. Phoenix even goes up against Atuma. Claremont saw Jean as Phoenix as this larger-than-life superfighter, and constantly tried to show that off later on we will even see the phoenix force challenge galactus in one form or another so the idea was that the phoenix could take on any big powerful character in the marvel universe why atuma you know i couldn't tell you i don't feel like at this point the x-men have spent too much time with namor at least none that i can think of in the claremont era so this story does sort of come out of nowhere it also talks a lot about very human very mortal things to be jumping back and forth between superheroics and the more subtle plot sarah asks if she had children if they could possibly be mutants because clearly you know it runs in the family and gene is like oh are you afraid they'll be like me more or less and it's so interesting because this is the same conversation where sarah has to be like so i guess mom and dad told you about the fact that i
0: died in space It's interesting, and Gene comes off a little snarky about it, like, what, you don't want them to be like me because at this point Gene is a very cocky phoenix? But we see the fears of Sarah as homo erectus, not homo superior mutants, and it's she's afraid of what that means for her children and it's a very valid fear because we're still we're not there fully yet we got little bits of it in the hellfire club parts but mutants aren't fully hated yet we're not fully there just yet but having sarah be worried about it is a very valid concern to talk about her sister who is a mutant Jean isn't as supportive as i think she should or would want to be but i i get it it's you don't want someone to say what if you you're your kids are now to be like, is that a problem? Yes, I know. Especially considering
1: this takes place a year after Jean has died. We know that Jean being a mutant led to some really dark times for her, especially her death. Her death. So it's not unrealistic for this story to be given that sort of like, oh, it could even be hindsight. It could be Sarah's looking at this from the other side and seeing it with regret blinders that she wasn't better to her sister even. One of the things about this story that stands out the most to me is the art. I think the art is beautiful. I think it is really stunning, but it is tough looking at this art in black and white. Much like the other two stories in this magazine Form Bizarre Adventures we discussed, both the Iceman story and the Nightcrawler story, because we are so used to seeing these characters in luscious full color, it's hard not to notice the dramatic shift to a darker tone and a less rich texture. I do think that it is drawn beautifully, and I think so much of the art has such phenomenal details. And also, if I can, this is like my favorite use of the Phoenix font, this font that they use to both title the story and that Jean screams when she summons the raptor. I think it's really terrific. I don't know what it is, but it's like,
0: yeah, that's a really cool Phoenix font. I think the art is on point with this. It's so beautiful. It's dynamic. But I I have to agree with you, color would have brought this much more to life in the way that it should have been there's plot points where they're talking about color like where color would have made sense and would have helped with this it was a choice i don't agree with the choice but it was pretty detailed wise this is a very beautiful issue to look at and i agree with you the use of the font everything the choices in that way stylistically are great there's also something about the last page of this story that i think warrants discussion and
1: jean For all the ways she is my favorite character, and for the ways we talk about that she was the girl-next-door kind of Girl Scout type, she loves secrets. The last two pages feature Jean thinking to herself, I know what she's thinking. She's terrified about her kids, not simply whether or not they're mutants, but what kind of mutants. I think it'll be better for all concerned if I erase her memories of today's events, her knowledge of Phoenix, we were sailing, we had an accident, she saves my life. I'll speak to Professor Xavier about Sarah and the children. He'll find a way to determine their genetic status. The psionic block on my memories lasted till your death, Sarah then thinks. Then it dissolves. Oh my god. Jean just went in and like mind wiped the fact that she was Phoenix right out of her sister's head. This is also like the 80th story that we've read involving Jean and a boat or a dock or the ocean. There's something about loving to put this woman on water.
0: Next time we'll see Jean, she'll be ice skating. Jean on ice. But I agree it's when she's talking about Sarah being concerned about her kids of what kind of mutants they are it makes sense because it goes back to that very old school mentality of we don't talk about what happens behind closed doors you would put up a very specific front and you don't talk about the skeletons in the closet it's one thing if her kids are mutant but it's not a visible mutation or it's not something like Scott's concussive blast where he has to have his eyes shut or with his ruby quartz visor but if her kids turn out something like Nightcrawler, a very visible mutation, and it's why we always come back to him as an example of this, there's a lot of persecution and there's a lot of issues that's going to come with that. So Jean makes an astute observation, it's not being a mutant, it's what kind of mutant are you? How well can you hide your mutant abilities? It's really an interesting take on do I want my kids to be mutants or not? Like, what am I okay with level-wise? But Jean being so ready to erase all of this from her is so, I want to say uncharacteristically Jean, but that's kind of who Jean is, is she's willing to just say, I don't want my sister to go through this pain right now. She doesn't need to know about it. She really doesn't. It's really interesting to see Jean wanted to protect her sister in this way and have it end when she died. I think something else in this issue that is great is that Sarah almost is ready to live under the ocean. She's ready to fill out her Little Mermaid fantasies, but she realizes she has a duty to be a mom to her kids. I really appreciate something you said that this is or isn't in Jean's
1: character. We've remarked a number of times that we find that Xavier is like, I won't use my powers to change anyone's mind. I changed my mind. I'm going to use my powers to change my mind. Good. Now you agree with me. Everything's better. Right. That's like Xavier's go-to move. But we're constantly like, nah, Gene doesn't do that. Nah, Gene does that. Jean is just as questionable at this point as Xavier is. Early on, Gene believed she was only telekinetic. So when her telepathy was unlocked by Xavier's death, as he had put blocks on her telepathy, it gave her access to a whole new world of abilities. Then, her powers became exponentially increased as Phoenix. Then, again, exponentially increased as Dark Phoenix. The character that Jean is, is somebody who fought with the idea of what power is and could be. Something we said that held the Emma Frost story in the third Dark Phoenix episode we did back was that there really wasn't room for an Emma Frost story like that in the middle of all of this. If perhaps there had been a better way to contrast Jean and Emma at these times, who they are and what that represents, perhaps that story would have hit a little bit better. I know I would have liked to have seen That idea that Jean was doing what she believed was right, even when she did it in a somewhat corrupt method, I would have liked to see that more openly discussed at this point. Claremont's pen was very deft and very careful when it came to Jean, but
0: there are still so many more stories I would have loved to have seen, and yet we got so many pointless classics. We really did. Um, I don't want to say those stories were pointless and I don't want to discredit them, but so much of it could have been skipped. So much of it could have been something else. There's another time and there's another place for those stories. So pulling a page from last episode, I think I would
1: say as strange as this story is, I feel like I would include it in a grand collection of Dark Phoenix materials. I would be sure to see this bizarre adventure story make it in, if for no other reason it gives a little bit more insight into who Gene was leading up to this time. Interestingly enough, it has been collected with multiple
0: Dark Phoenix collections, and I can see why. It's a pretty good story of a character that was affected very personally to the events of the Dark Phoenix saga, but also it makes sense to have more about Jean and, as Nico said, more of Jean before all of this happened. It actually also gives us a little bit of Jean's backstory of her developing her powers and why she decided to isolate herself and why she was so lonely as a kid before Charles found her. And I think it deserves its rightful place within the Dark Phoenix of Procopher. That brings us to the last
1: story that really fits into the giant-sized X-Men era. Uncanny X-Men 138, as we mentioned earlier, is a complete retelling of the events that lead up to this moment in time. Standing by Jean's grave, Scott recounts all of the things that led to this point in X-Men history. And Claremont and Byrne didn't just want to do an issue to summarize what you'd need to know to read what you've already read and The story is yet to come in an era before there were reprints and collections. But they wanted to use this as an opportunity to refine and clarify some of the positions and changes they'd be making. For instance, while we have always maintained that Charles Xavier is kind of a gross creep. He really comes off like a jerk here.
0: Absolutely. As a reader who hasn't read the original 66, I completely agree. I think this issue really helps bridge the gap of what was already told before Giant Size X-Men number one and then help everyone catch up. I think it was a really smart, I almost wanted to call this the clip show issue because it's a summation and just a lot of different art and character designs of what happened beforehand. It essentially is meant to be the same thing as a clip show. Clip shows existed from an era before
1: reruns and syndication were as commonplace. They were a way that they could make sure that the relevant and best jokes that made the show famous got to new audiences. It's the same thing here. This is a way that they can get this material and information to a wide readership in a quick method so that they don't have to waste their time re-summarizing things every issue over and over. There's something very interesting about the way pink is used on both the cover and the first page of number 138. Pink was Jean's power signature, regardless of the fact that the phoenix was always engulfed in red and orange fire. Jean's psionic signature was pink, so the fact that every cover is covered in a pink filter and that the sky behind them is pink really says something. The sky is also filled with black leaves, and there's just something about... The idea of loss and death that comes across very clearly shrouded in Jean's colors. Once Scott starts recounting what led to the X-Men and where they were, we get a really interesting depiction of the early days. The first issue of X-Men starts with Jean Grey
0: coming to the school and... Here instead, we're shown a little bit of time before that happened. I absolutely agree. I think probably actually one of my favorite panels is seeing Jean for the first time arrive at the X mansion. It's a very... Interesting symboli- symbolism to show where Jean started, and you can see just how quite young Jean is. She's just in her coat and her hat, and she looks ready to learn more about herself and what's actually happening to her and what she is. And I think it's a really great parallel for the way that this issue ends, but I don't want to get to that just yet. Something I realized about the X Men reading just this issue is that they were very much a villain of the week type story. There are so many villains they encountered, a lot of them have really weird designs and despite
1: all of these villains that they cover they go out of their way to hit just about every member of the brotherhood mastermind in his original form quicksilver and scarlet witch who they do note shortly thereafter go on to become avengers toad blob amongst all of the regulars they hit They managed to hit Magneto a dozen times because the X-Men fought Magneto a dozen fucking times. They also managed to mention every random villain they ever fought. But I guess that's because there's only 66 issues to pull from. If they fought Magneto for 12 of them, then there's still 54 issues that feature other characters. And there's only so much canon. And one of the things that really stood out to me while going through this issue is how little the X-Men were defined early on by their emotional growth or their personal successes. Almost all of these stories are dominated by who they fought, not how they grew or what they learned. There are very few exceptions to that amongst the references to the savage land and kazar the stranger and juggernaut we get hints of the emotional reality of what scott is going through as an x-man we see the team graduate and get their costumes designed by marvel girl i love that they go out of their way to mention that marvel girl designed these costumes because when jean emerged from the water as phoenix She did not consciously create that costume, it was the embodiment of the idea of the Phoenix. When she went to the blue side of the moon, she was wearing her Marvel Girl costume. Jean died in the heroic persona she created for herself, not in the persona created by Phoenix. So I think going out of their way to remind us that this was how Jean got that costume was very important.
0: I absolutely agree. I actually find that such a fascinating detail. Jean could have been quite the fashionista if she was just a human. She has a great eye for detail and her costumes will actually look pretty good. This is a really interesting issue because something that Nico touched upon before is we're seeing Scott's perception of the people around him and how they're reacting to Jean's funeral. And something that Nico said was Scott comes off much more calm in this issue here he has a very clear thought process but the other characters around him don't seem to be reacting the same way he is everyone seems sad but no one seems as sad as him no one seems as no one's reacting the way he is well
1: everybody else is trying to survive this moment and get through being by the graves and being filled with sadness for losing jean Scott's spending his time recounting his life with Gene as it led to this moment, and it's not without its other moments of sadness and tragedy. In fact, a few pages in, Scott remembers that they fought a villain named the Grotesque. He was the last survivor of a race exterminated by radiation from nuclear tests. He wished to pay humanity back in kind. Scott says we stopped him, but it cost us far more than we expected. Professor Charles Xavier. So this is the first time the professor properly dies. However, several years earlier, in a battle against Magneto, Xavier quote-unquote lost his powers, sending the X-Men in alone without his help. Later on, Xavier would come to reveal that this was just a test to see if the X-Men were ready to graduate. The art that they choose for this panel is so important. Scott is emotional and frustrated, and Xavier is
0: calmly smoking a pipe, faced away from Scott. You know, we often talk about Charles being a dick in the current issues of Uncanny that we're reading, but holy shit, you do that to your students, I understand what Charles was trying to do, but the way he reacted to it, and Scott saying that he just had to rug sweep it like nothing actually happened, is pretty grotesque, and Charles, you are a giant baby, but. That is one of the most fucked up things you can do to people to lie to them multiple times and then just pretend like you have to go with it because I'm your leader is really just really gross. Especially because there is a sense of enlisting them as
1: soldiers in his army. He goes out of his way to make it very clear that humanity has a very specific relationship with mutancy. And when he offers these mutants a home, it's so that someday humanity will accept mutants. I'm not saying that I believe that Charles Xavier is slowly working toward the destruction of human-mutant relations by establishing a small militia out of his house in New York. But there is a sense of... Manipulation and of pulling others into a war he's choosing to wage. Speaking of others, we get the inclusion of a number of X-Men characters that Claremont would go on to use, but what's fascinating is he just leaves out the ones he wasn't planning on using. He goes out of his way to include Polaris, the mistress of magnetism, of course, and whether or not she is Magneto's daughter, and Havoc in his battle against the living pharaoh, two storylines that will come up again under Claremont's pen. He doesn't mention the mimic, a sort of mutant who fought the X-Men, could copy their powers and eventually fought them. Claremont shows Sunfire, who the X-Men met before he joined the giant-sized team, but they don't mention Banshee, both fought against and alongside the X-Men, during the Factor 3 story, despite mentioning Factor 3. So it's really interesting the pieces Claremont chose to show. We get tons of stuff about the Savage Land, but... We don't get too much about all of that weird Magneto kept becoming a baby stuff.
0: I understand that they were trying to stick with what happened in Uncanny X-Men Issues. But there are certain details that could have been borrowed from the supplemental issues of using the other characters. As Nico said, Magneto turning into a baby, which is mentioned in Uncanny, so that should have been brought up here when that happened. I actually do like the reference to talking about Beast. We've covered the Beast stories of how he transformed from his human-looking mutant self to the blue furry fuzzy guy. And Scott remarks that Beast doesn't want to talk about it, and he's just as happy just to use his cloaking machine device
1: oh no 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 you see claremont thinks about those things and nightcrawler has an image transducer but beast wears a latex mask of his own face he made ew yep In fact, that was something that Beast created in Amazing Adventures to hide his appearance. But legitimately, Scott even remarks, something happened to him. He still won't speak of it. He mutated physically from a person with the ability of a beast to one with the look of a beast as well. Even now, he's hiding his true features under a mask of his old face. What? However, I have to point out that that is right under the panel where it's revealed that Xavier wasn't dead. No, no, no. He was hiding in an underground bunker beneath their house, faking his death so that he could help fight off an
0: incoming alien invasion. Xavier comes off horrible in this. I think that's just what's important is that Charles isn't as warm as he thinks he is and maybe the X-Men don't like him as much as he thinks he is. You know, maybe Scott would have decided to stay if Charles was more honest, open, receptive, and warm and more of a father-like figure than Scott has ever had. But, I think it's really, really, really good characterization to show how closed off and almost how detached Charles is from the X-Men and how, not how little he cares for them, but how disposable he kind of thinks they are. He's upset when they die, but he doesn't tell them these important plans and he's willing to let them think that he's either dead or that he doesn't have his powers it's i think probably that is one of the deciding factors of why scott ultimately leaves at this point but before
1: scott can leave claremont takes time to retell the giant size era and oh man he applies the same sort of magic marker to redesign this that he did to 1 through 66 once again We see a version of Giant Size X-Men, as we knew it, cut down to roughly three panels, just like in classic X-Men. Without the portion of the story that tells Charles going around the world, gathering together his new team of X-Men, Giant Size X-Men boils down to roughly Punch Punch Island Go Bye Bye. And that's really all Giant Size X-Men is. Of course, it's not just stories that get shortened. Whole stories get deleted. The Night of the Demon, which will come up again, is completely omitted from this. And the three issues that took us into space to fight Stephen Lang and gave us the Phoenix Force? Three panels. The three issues at Cassidy Keep plus fighting Magneto? One panel.
0: It's unbelievable how Claremont decides to treat some of these story elements i will say though for some reason we get the gay as fuck pose of mesmero with his leg up during the carnival arc when they fight magneto you're right it's so weird how much he's omitting and how much chris claremont thinks is necessary i don't think all of this detail needed to be erased but there's some that i it, it makes sense because there's so much going into this this almost is a sensory overload of Oh, it's actually really funny when you compile everything together. The X-Men, it seems like they don't go through that much, but they actually have gone through a lot. It's a weird dynamic of how... X Men is written that not much happens, but so much happens at the exact same time. It's always too much, not enough.
1: What's funny is, in the grand scheme of laying out all of the heroes and villains, inexplicably, the two largest villains in the big group shot of who they've fought panel are Sauron. Sure, it's his second or third time appearing. Okay, but the other large one is Moses Magnum. And I'm just like, yeah. The Magnum Force, you guys. The Magnum Force. It is also very interesting that Arcade's panel is just as large as the panel of Jason Wingard beginning his Seduction of Gene. I don't think that every one of these panel size choices was a definitive statement about the value or importance of each story, but when we're talking about a graphic medium like this, it's so important to understand what each thing is meant to contribute. For instance, on the Anti-Penultimate page, we get this great shot of Kitty that reminds us who she is it's going to be important because she comes back up in just another page or two and until now kitty pride hasn't come up once that makes sense x-men 1 to 137 is Jean's book x-men 138 and on
0: that's a different story the attention to detail of where it needs to be is really really important kitty getting that page and as nico said reminding us of who she is is really important because as we said in the last episode and as i'm sure we said this episode life after Jean includes the new protagonist of x-men kitty and how the x-men deal with a student we talked about this a lot that the x-men don't aren't young these aren't kids and Charles has trouble not treating them as kids. But now we're going to see what the X-Men do with a, an actual student because Kitty's only 13. She still technically needs to be in school and learning academic things. It's just really interesting how this comes off from Cyclops' perspective, all these events and what happened. And putting it all together like this is a really a great move, I think. And it's it's something that was really necessary after the really heavy storytelling of what was a Dark Phoenix saga to now a really airy breather it's still sad but it's not as gut punching it's okay
1: let's recount what got us to this point i actually have a quote by chris claremont on what got us to this point claremont was asked by tom defalco speaking of epics did you plan the dark phoenix saga from the beginning and claremont said Pretty much, yeah. Dave and I had been kicking around the idea. We wanted to take a normal person and kick him or her up to a level of a Thor or a Silver Surfer without going through the stations of the cross you need to evolve to the point where you could handle the power. With great power comes great responsibility, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. How do you shuffle those two concepts together? What happens if you don't? We also wanted to put a major character at serious risk. We wanted to take the audience right to the edge, Have them worry about what's going to happen. We didn't want the readers to ever take the book or the characters for granted. We wanted to establish a sense that even the franchise characters in X-Men were not safe. If we could establish that, then I figured we'd done something that no series has ever done before. DeFalco's next question is, but you didn't plan to kill Jean Grey, did you? And Claremont said, no, the truth is, John and I weaseled out of our own rationale. We loved her too much. Dark Phoenix was supposed to be a middle chapter of a story. Phoenix was the first part, Dark Phoenix was the second part, and it was all supposed to culminate in X-Men 150. Magneta would figure out what was going on, grab Jean, and offer her the Phoenix Force powers back. From the beginning, Dave and I always saw Jean as the victim, and John did when he came on the book. She was swept up by power and forces beyond her control. What happened wasn't her fault, because she was literally surfing a power tsunami that was beyond her control. A tragic thing happened to her, and she had no chance within the context of that story. When Magneto offered her the Phoenix power, she would assert her innate heroism and say, No, I will not do this. I am not ready to be a god. She would turn her back on the one thing she wanted more than anything in the world and get on with her life. Mind you, at that point, she would be totally powerless. There would be no more Marvel Girl. The power would have been burned out of her. She wouldn't have been any sort of active X-Man. At which point, Claremont clarifies that Jim Shooter intervened, but here's actually one of the things I think is the most important. He said, We killed off half of the second oldest romantic relationship in the Marvel Universe. We killed off a major franchise character, and we said it was real. The credibility gained from that event was just fantastic, and then we topped it with Days of Future Past. John and I were on such a roll in those last six months. The stuff was just so good, it was powerful, and it was fun. What we were cramming into two issues would take three years these days. And the proof of the pudding is here we are, 25 bloody years later, and Marvel is still evolving stories off of what we did. Whether it's Days of Future Past or Dark Phoenix, or the relationships with Magneto, Marvel is still living off the seeds
0: we planted. That quote is kind of everything. It really is. And it's almost funny how much Chris Claremont knows that this is almost the holy grail of Marvel. When you're willing to sacrifice a mainstay and important fan favorite character and you're willing to say nobody's safe it really creates really interesting storytelling because that means you can take it anywhere and it tells a reader oh it's as chris said you don't want the, your readers to take a character or a story for granted and i think that they absolutely achieve that effect it's i don't take the x-men for granted anymore because i know at any moment one of them is going to die or can die and so much of what the x-men
1: become is based on what he says there chris claremont's credibility that he earned with the Dark Phoenix saga, is quickly pissed away in a series of over-the-top resurrections and cycles of death that will just about never end. But before that can happen, Claremont says goodbye to this era by having Lalandra, who, by the way, Lalandra is such a tragic figure. I feel like the first few times I've read this, I didn't really appreciate Lalandra. I thought she was a bird person with plume hair. And here I actually see her as more than just a character thrust into this story. She is someone with her own narrative in this. I think she was benefited by the classic. You know, at the time we were pretty negative on that classic, but looking back at it from this perspective, I feel like having 10 more pages, 12 more pages with Lalandra helped me to appreciate her more as a character. She is in that opening panel image, looking sadly in the elegy. She here gives John Gray, Jean's father, an orb with a piece of of Jean's psychic consciousness in it. This will come up again, and it's a really nice touch. I feel like Lalandra and the Shi'ar were trapped in an impossible position, forced to do what no one else wanted to be stuck doing.
0: I absolutely agree. Lalandra was put in probably one of the hardest catch-22s that a character could be placed in, and what does she do? And it goes back to that psychology that we talk about of it's so easy to reprimand someone evil. And do for someone for doing evil if you don't know them. But it's with someone that you consider family and very close to you. You don't know how to feel and you have to react some way. She had to make a decision. She couldn't stand by and let that go unnoticed, unpunished, and unreprimanded. And the choice she made was the one to benefit her people. She realized the many outweighed the one, no matter how much she loved that one.
1: It's important to remember that Gene is defined by being a hero. If Jean had not sacrificed herself, we would not look back on her actions and think, the hero shined through in these moments, and it is being a hero that is at the center of the X-Men. As one story ends and Scott leaves the X-Men, believing Jean to be gone forever, another story begins. The last panels of 138 show Kitty Pride arriving to Xavier Institute, taking a seat and waiting for her new beginning. Jonah? Jonah, can I ask you a question, Jonah? Of course, Nico. Jonah, what does it look like Kitty's shirt says?
0: This 13-year-old white girl from Chicago is wearing a shirt that says bitch on it, bedazzled and jeweled and whatever. If
1: there's something I don't know, like if there was some sort of popular bank, like ITC Bank or something, and someone needs to tell me this, please do. Because as of right now, I'm pretty sure Kitty Pride is wearing a shirt
0: that says bitch. It is one of the greatest details I've ever seen. I really hope she's wearing a shirt that says bitch. And I hope that's her first impression she makes. I can just imagine Charles. Young lady, you shouldn't have profanity on your shirt. Ah! Of course, then he would steal it for
1: himself and wear it all the time. I feel like the giant-sized X-Men that Chris Claremont began is certainly not the giant-sized X-Men that makes contact with the Phoenix Force in issue 100. It is certainly not the giant-sized X-Men that repairs the latticework of reality in 108. They are not the giant-sized X-Men that find themselves stranded in the Savage Land, later making their way to Japan and ultimately Canada. They are not the same uncanny X-Men who challenged Proteus on Mirror Island, nor are they the X-Men that began or ended the Dark Phoenix saga. That team transformed with every mission and every story. And it's not just that they transformed in terms of growing and a conceptual development. In fact, when we take a look, Giant Size 94 and 95 had Banshee, Colossus, Cyclops, Nightcrawler, Storm, Thunderbird, Sunfire, Wolverine with help From Angel, Cyclops, Havoc, Iceman, Polaris, and Phoenix. Ultimately, the team would become, from issue 96 to 128, Banshee, Colossus, Cyclops, Phoenix, Nightcrawler, Storm, and Wolverine. With pretty consistent help from Beast, Havoc, Polaris, Xavier, Moira, the Shi'ar in their entirety. I feel like I know so many Shi'ar at this point. I can think of a number of the Super Guardians and Chancellor Araki and Gladiators. So many of those characters have become so real to me. And it's so strange that this is the end of that era and the significance they served in the X-Men. If last issue it was hard to say goodbye to Jean Grey and the Phoenix Saga, this episode, it's very difficult to say goodbye to who the X-Men were. I'm very excited for this new era with Kitty and the new mutants and so many changes that redefine not just this book, but the franchise it's in and comics as a medium. But it really is a bittersweet goodbye to these years of X-Men. Jonah, these last six years of X-Men have been probably the most of any comic book you've ever read in your life. Six years later, are they still as giant and uncanny?
0: I think they are. And I think this is going to be one of the main themes of what X-Men always goes for is evolution. The team's evolving. They're going to have to figure out how to evolve, as I said, with their newest member, Kitty Pride, and teach her what it means to be an X-Men and what it means to be a hero. But also what it means to not have Scott as the leader. Up until this point, they've only known Scott as the one to call the shots. Now it's going to be, well... Who's going to be in charge? Who's the one who's going to lead the X-Men to victory or failure now? It's really, I couldn't put it better myself, as Nico said, it's bittersweet. We're losing two characters, regardless of how you feel on them, in ways that ultimately make sense for their characters of, yeah, no, I get that, but now we get to have a new character. And I think it's so great that this issue doesn't end on the end, it ends on the beginning, because that's what it is, just as Jean started in her coat, in her hat, and waiting on those steps and arriving at the X-Mansion we get the beginning with Kitty and I think it's just it's really great to see and I'm so excited I am so excited to see what this young woman is going to do in tandem with the X-Men
1: the X-Men will never be the same once Kitty Pride joins and Uncanny Exes for Podcast won't either. We're using this opportunity to redefine the series with some exciting new features. We're going to have some new correspondence coming on and bringing you some great new material. We're also going to see the addition of several new titles to the Uncanny Exes for Podcast family. I couldn't be more excited than to bring you the next era of Uncanny Greatness. But Jonah, until we kick things off with our next era... Where can everybody find you online?
0: If you'd like to find me and reach out to me online, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, this has been an amazing project so far and I'm so excited for the new changes just like the X-Men were evolving with them. Where can they find you online? You can find me here on Cage Club making shows like Now
1: and Again with my childhood best friend Chris where we take a look at the Now That's What I Call music series or MCU.html which I make with my incredible husband Kevo who you can also catch on this show. Talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all of its many splendors ways you can also check me out at kidriotcomics.com where i make a super inclusive super diverse comic book about a speedster saving the day if you like what i look like you can check me out on nico action on instagram that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n all right man it seems so weird but i've said goodbye on this show 22 times but there's something much realer about saying goodbye to gene this time so all right until she rises again
0: bye gene and bye everyone else